Welcome to the National Film Pod of Canada, the podcast with a different take on the movies. My name is George Kaplan. Today we have an interview with American film critic Jonathan Rosenbaum about his book, Movie Wars, How Hollywood and the Media Conspire to Limit the Films We Can See. The book deals with the dominance of Hollywood and mainstream media in how movies are sold to the public and excludes anything which doesn't have their approval. Now, I have to preface this episode by saying that this is an old interview done 20 years ago for a radio show that a local Toronto film co-op was producing, and I was a part of a team that produced uh, this movie show every week. And that weird thing about uh, that show is that most of the people involved in it didn't know much about movies, but it didn't seem to stop them from talking about them. Anyway, uh, the book uh, was actually published in 2000, and this interview was done in 2003. And at the time, Rosenbaum was an active uh, film critic, writing for a Chicago paper called The Chicago Reader, like kind of like Now Magazine here in, in Toronto. He's still around, but now he's retired. The interview is a bit U.S.-centric, but that should not be a surprise. Uh, since the interview was done in 2003, there's a few outdated uh, comments and remarks that you will hear, like when we talk about Miramax, the Weinstein uh, film company. That was before the whole Weinstein Me Too scandal. And the other is the small matter of the Iraq War, which was just about to start back in uh, 2003. The book deals with what Rosenbaum calls the movie apparatus. That is an expression used to describe the Hollywood media monopoly of production, distribution, and exhibition that very much controls what we see. Along with that, just to point out the general weirdness of the American movie industry, I'd like for listeners to notice something that Rosenbaum says around the middle of the interview, quote, that it's not necessary for a movie to be liked by the public in order for it to succeed if the studio behind the movie has enough money and influence, unquote. Just think about that for a while. Now, the book was written before streaming became popular, but it's still relevant, uh, especially at this very moment, when we are living through another Hollywood-made movie marketing frenzy where only two movies are talked about as if they were going to make life worth living, to the exclusion of every other movie, past and present. Our conversation started with what triggered the writing of the book. So I'm happy to have uh, with me today uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum, a veteran film uh, critic uh, currently writing with the Chicago Reader magazine in the U.S., who's on the phone uh, to talk to me about his book, Movie Wars. Uh, hi, and thanks uh, for taking the time out to talk to me. Oh, nice to be here. Uh, your book is called The Movie Wars, and uh, the book has a subtitle called How Hollywood and the Media uh, Limit What Films We Can See. And uh, that seems kind of pretty much sums it up. But uh, could you tell me for a bit uh, how, what exactly triggered uh, the writing of this book? Well, it was a book that was planned sometime before I, uh, before I wrote it because it took me a while to find a publisher who was interested uh, which was surprising because it, I think it wound up being more more people wound up responding favorably to it than even I anticipated, much less any of the publishers, and the, including the publisher who published it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, and it was a lot of, I think, things coming together. I think the thing that surprised me the most, and in a way is an interesting phenomena, is that I was that, that, that these pe that the, these topics hadn't been taken up earlier, because within the profession, at least among film critics and the press, there were just a lot of practices that everybody's aware of. Yet for some reason, they haven't really writ been written about as a kind of subject, which had an awful lot to do with the kind of um, I guess you could say certain kinds of abuses, but also certain types of uh, a kind of policed control over the image that we have of what movies are in terms of what movies we hear about, what movies we don't hear about, uh, the kinds of neglect given to a lot of important things that go on in film, and why this is so. In other words, what it is about 
the industry that produces this image, what it is about the press that produces this image, what it is ideologically as a kind mm -hmm. of uh, self-perpetuating mythology, you yeah. know, where all of this, in a sense, comes from, how it works. And even though I'm not, you know, sort of like an expert in some of these areas, it's something that affects me every day as a, as a film critic. And so it just was a matter of some concern. And also I'm lucky enough to have a place where I to be writing for a weekly new, uh, alternative newspaper that has a lot of, uh, gives me an enormous amount of freedom and space. And so I've been able to explore a lot of these things in my pieces generally. And it was, so it was a kind of thing, it kind of grew out of that process, I would say. So you, you're, kind of, you're kind of sensing there was like uh, that you weren't really having access to certain films or there was something preventing... Well, because I can find, but that's because I go to film festivals and yeah. have all sorts of means that the average film goer does not have. Um, and of course, I mean, of course, there are some things I don't have access to, but I think what's... I think the whole issue of access is something that hasn't really been addressed very much. That, you know, you... I, one thing that kind of infuriates... infuriated me when I wrote the book and still infuriates me is that you constantly get critics who are very highly respected talking about, you know, a particular year, this was a good year for film, this was a bad year for film, mm. saying this is a good, you know, that we're in a, living through a great era in cinema, we're living through a bad era, era in cinema. Yeah. All of this assumes that we've, that, that, you know, we have access to all the films that would be the likeliest candidates of important films. And I don't see what, um, why we have the right or what licenses us to make the, reach that assumption. In other words, that's to assume that somehow there's some magical process by which every good film that gets made, that, you know, sort of like uh, that there's such a thing as word of mouth, that if, yeah. that if something good happens, that it's going to be noticed in the press, that uh, yeah. that every good film is going to be picked up by a distributor, that, et cetera, et cetera. It's a yeah. whole series of things. And I think mm. that these are all, from my experience, not correct assumption. Yeah. So you're saying there's, there's an, an assumption, which I, I, I agree with you, that the, the films that are available to us presently at the Cineplex or even the video store, they're there because they happen to be the best. And if, you know, if we're not seeing certain films because they're not good, basically, there's a kind of a, whatever is there is there because it happens to be the best. And if we don't hear about anything, it must be because they're bad or That's people don't want to see. Which, which it completely mystifies the fact that millions of dollars are spent on a on a few films and the others don't get these these and so what we the films that exist in most people's minds are simply the ones that have multi-million dollar ad campaigns and if they don't then they don't exist basically that's right yeah. plus the fact and this is the worst part which i really wanted to address is that this state of affairs is constantly blamed on the audience that the audience is the one held responsible not the distributors not the producers not the exhibitors uh, etc. And not the journalists. It's it's somehow uh, that all the audience's fault, that they, all that everybody else is doing is just servicing this audience and giving them what they want. Mm. And I think I think this is a very insidious mythology because it extends to much more than film. I think it extends, for example, in my opinion, to uh, attitudes about the possible upcoming war right now. Oh, really? That there's a perception, you know, generally that, you know, Americans are all behind this and everything, and I think this is a completely unwarranted assumption. I don't think we know these things, actually. I don't think we know what America, what, what people in general think about most things. I think it's a mystery, and I think that the false illusion that we do know, that we know what people, what movies they want to see, that we know whether they want America to go to war or not, yeah. and et cetera, et cetera, are all presuppositions, mm. and presuppositions that are turned into, you know, factoids of a certain kind, because, yeah. they, because of, a, you know, being given a kind of constant reinforcement in the media, without evidence, because I don't, I tend to think that the polls that are used are a form of voodoo science that are usually based upon assumptions of wanting to prove what you've already decided. Yeah. And so you can go to figures and prove anything with them. Yeah. And, uh, and, I, and I guess one of the things that was basic to this is, you know, people always treat the kind of test marketing of Hollywood as if it were scientific. But if it were really scientific, then so many movies that went through this process wouldn't lose money. But they constantly are movies that are, you know, flop because of this. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, uh, and I think that there's so many flagrant cases of, you know, things of movies that have been destroyed by test marketing are almost destroyed. I mean, the favorite example I cite in the book is, you know, uh, test marketing supposedly demonstrated that the, the one thing that would prevent 
Wizard of Oz from becoming a success was Over the Rainbow because it slowed the movie down and so they they needed to cut it out. Yeah. And somebody was just bright enough to ignore this, you know, and decided to release it as it was anyway. Yeah, in your, uh, basically, in, your, in that kind of mode, you're basically, there's the kind of thing, there's a bit of a status quo kind of a general system in a way of, of, of distribution exhibition uh, that, that's in place and nobody really wants to question it or they just assume it's there and it's perfect and it's running wonderfully. But and you seem to, in your book, uh, you kind of take some pot shots, not pot shots, I, I think pretty accurate shots at critics uh, who kind of maintain this kind of uh, status quo. Uh, the you know, kind of mainstream film critic who just don't have any interest in films other than Hollywood film. Could you talk about that a bit? Well, yes. I think that there's um I mean, it's always been true to some extent. I think it's gotten worse in the last in the, in in some ways in the last few years for a seri- for a series of reasons, partly because the press has gotten worse, but also because the amount of money spent on publicity has risen astronomically, particularly since I don't know, like the 50s, for example. And, of course, the whole patterns of movie-going have changed, too. That's also true. But I actually think that um, that there's a kind of a policing that goes on. I just, I mean, a good example of this, um, which I, I, I address partly in the book, but is a, a writer who has an enormous amount of prestige in the English-speaking world, not just in America, is David Thompson, who just had a, you know, a new edition. I don't remember which one of of a uh, biographical dictionary of the cinema. And oh, yes. I just happen to have it in my mind because I've just read a really wonderful blistering attack on this film that I think is going to be coming out in Film Comet. Uh, but the point is is that he his prestige comes from the fact, I think one has to say, that he basically says that the cinema is dead, that nothing of importance you know, is really happening anymore. And he doesn't even bother to see most of the films that I think more serious critics consider the most the most important films of our time. I mean, most of them he has not seen and he's not interested in seeing. And this gives an enormous kind of sense of relief to to magazine editors, to other critics, because it means that they can, that they can if they're lazy, they can go on being lazy. They don't have to do their <laughs> homework because there's nothing important to see anyway. Yes. Uh, didn't you, uh, uh, in your book, I recall a few times where you kind of I don't know if maybe it's my interpretation, but you kind of blame maybe Pauline Kael of the New York, was it the New Yorker or the New York Times? I don't remember. New York. Who kind of started this trend of ignoring foreign films? I well, I don't think she's the only one by any means. I think that, um, and I think that to be fair, Pauline started out as you know being very much um, a proselytizer of foreign films. Mm-hmm. I think what happened was when her when this when her audience changed and her perception of her audience changed. There was a certain kind of way she went more and more after certain pop things, but, but you know she wasn't always predictable. I think she did tend to, t- to uh, lose interest in most foreign films, which is unfortunate. Mm. Uh, and I do think that there's a kind of changing climate because um, there was a time when foreign films got much more attention from the mainstream media. At least certainly this was the case in the '60s. But we also it's a, it's an interlocking problem because um, you know in the in the United States. In the in the fifties, you had over a thousand art cinemas, and uh, you don't anymore. And the reason why you had so many then wasn't because the audience, you know, had a particular different. Great. The only reason why that it was a different situation is the is the enforcement of the antitrust laws, which I also talk about. Yes, uh, uh, maybe we could kind of explain that a bit because I think it is important for our listeners uh, that the fact that in the beginning of Hollywood. Hollywood pretty much controlled everything. They were, as they say, vertically integrated. They controlled exhibition production and distribution. So they could basically pretty much show anything and impose their will on everything. And then the U.S. government started to, uh, I think, basically there was a monopoly involved, and they decided to prosecute them, and they ended up breaking up uh, their domination, right? And this, in your book, you explained that was the start of the proliferation of art cinemas and so on. That's right. And it was not only, and for example, everything that's known today as the midnight movie grew out of that as well. Because there's a certain type of, in other words, when you have enough independent theaters, then it's a, it's, the business works a different way, even the way you book films. I know this a little bit from my own uh, 
background because my family was an exhibition. And my family was actually one of the fa- – I mean, their business was one of the businesses that was actually sued by the government. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so they actually became reluctantly independent, yeah. during which time they showed more foreign films than they had before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the point is is that once there were all these – you had this proliferation because they were enforcing the laws at first. Then when Ronald Reagan came into office, part of Ronald Reagan's brief was to not enforce those laws. So it became a joke in Washington that the yeah. – um, that the you know the antitrust division was called the trust division actually, yeah. and it's, it continues that way today. That you know you do get rare cases or but, you know yeah. special cases like for example the thing against um, you know Microsoft, Microsoft yeah. for example. But but in but in film by and large you do not get the enforcement, and consequently you have a monopoly situation, which I compare in a in a way to what we used to call you know Stalinist culture. Mm. That it's a kind of uh, controlled culture. Which is really, uh, which is, which basically imposing anything that the studios want on the culture, and then turning around and saying this is just what the audience want. Which I I make a joke about. I'm saying if you know you were dying of thirst in the desert, and you were offered a choice between liquid soap and shoe polish, yeah, and you picked uh, liquid soap, they'd say, see, that proves the audience likes liquid soap. In Toronto, we have obviously the International Film Festival, and as an example of what you're saying, uh, of the official story, like if you read magazines or if you look at the, the newspaper when it starts to uh, to, to roll on the, the festival, from what the coverage, you'd, you'd think that the only films being shown are Hollywood movies. Yes. You'd never hear about, you know, it's an international film festival, but you never hear about the international part of it. It's all about the movie stars that, you know, come well, in. It was very funny, very amusing thing that happened uh, this year at the Toronto Festival. I mean, it was interesting. I don't know if you could say. Well, it was partly amusing. Is that you started to hear about foreign films, uh, one foreign film in particular, only because there were a lot of high-profile American critics who couldn't get into screenings. They couldn't get into screening. Oh, that's right, because they were so crowded, and they were and they were protesting very loudly about it. Oh, yeah. And so they were actually attacked quite quite a bit in the Toronto press for it. And it was, and some of them, in case of, you know, like Roger Ebert, he responded with a piece of his own, and there was a lot of back and forth about it. Which film was that? Uh, it was a film that actually, unfortunately, has not even shown or been picked up for distribution in the United States yet, which is called 9-11-01, which is a series of films made all over the world, short films about September 11th. Oh, yes, I've heard of it, but obviously I haven't seen that. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's very interesting that it, you know, that again, that perceived that it can't be shown in America because, you know, some things in it are critical of America. But, I mean, you yeah. know, this is supposed to be, what is it, the land of the free and all of this. Yeah. I mean, we're supposed to be, we, America supposedly prides itself on lack of censorship, and yet this is a film that can only, I could only see when I was in uh, Toronto. I could not see in the United States. And I think it's and I think the fact that so many people wanted to see it so that there was such a crowd is also significant. But I mean it was only written about I guess what I'm saying is in the Toronto press because high profile star critics star you know, critics, people like yeah. Roger Ebert, you know, couldn't get in. They made a fuss and so That's we right. heard about it. Let me give you another example of what I mean I think is significant in this way. Uh quite shocking. Uh, Abbas Kuristami, the Iranian filmmaker, who I, I consider, I mean, I've just co-authored a, a book about him coming out next year, but I consider him the greatest living filmmaker, um, could not go to America to, uh, with his new film, Ten, to show at the New York Film Festival, because even though he's, he was in the United States seven times before, he basically, they told that he needed three months to get clearance. He had to go to Paris and then wait three months to get clearance, mm. because he's one of the access of evil people. <laughs> And and so he he basically you know so they had to cancel. Now this was not considered newsworthy by the New York Times. Yes. However, when Aki Kurismaki, uh, a Finnish filmmaker, then decided he wasn't going to go to the New York Film Festival as a gesture of solidarity himself, then there was an item in the New York Times <laughs> saying that both Kurismaki and Kuristami weren't coming. Hmm. I think it's really funny what is considered what makes something newsworthy. You know, you know, there's some strange priorities. Uh, uh, I kind of like to get into the point of, of also because I find it this interesting, interesting for film critics that uh, you make the point also. I when you quote Samuel Fuller, the filmmaker, saying that 
was it Andrew Saris or somebody? He, he lost his job at the New oh, York Vincent Times. Canby, yeah. He, right. uh, David Canby, yeah. And he went to a bar and talked about a movie. Nobody would care because he's no longer with the uh, an important. In other words, the institution, yeah. uh, the critics, are right to are more important than the film critics themselves. Although it's less true than it used to be. I think uh, what's one thing that's actually a development that I actually think has improved appreciably since I wrote the book is the is actually the situation that New York Times even though the people who are the most prominent film reviewers there are not people who have maybe let's say as much background or grounding in film as one would like even less so than Vincent Canby for example there's still I think a broader diversity and I think that there's a conscientiousness about the way they do research and the way that they try to cover everything, that it's actually gotten much better. That Because, you know, you had this ridiculous situation around the time I was writing the book, when Janet Maslin was the critic there, when you actually had her devoting more space at Cannes to the objections of Harvey Weinstein at Miramax about the films that got the prizes than the films themselves that got the prizes or anything else. It was sort of like... Um, that she was just basically becoming almost like a shell for uh, Miramax. Yes. And, um, and and that we you don't have that kind of situation as far as I'm aware at all at the Times anymore. So I think, in, you know, that's one area among others where I think things have changed mm. a little bit since I wrote the book. Yes, I, well, I, just, I found that interesting because I actually saw a book in a bookstore it was, it said, in the film section. It said, the New York Times goes to the movies. It wasn't, it, there was no film critics on the book. It was that the New York Times goes to movies, and it was just a bunch of a collection of film reviews from the past, I guess. I never didn't actually bother yeah, to know, read it. Yeah, I know. There's a lot of that. There, and in fact, people saying, you know, well, the New Yorker says that, you yeah. know, as if as if the New Yorker were a person, you know. Um, and sure, there is there is an awful lot of that, and I think it's. I, I like to compare it to a story I tell, I think, somewhere in, in Movie Wars. I was lived in London in the, for a few years in the mid-'70s. And um, after they had press shows, they used to have you know, drinks and hors d'oeuvres, and critics would hang around and talk about the film that they'd just seen, and, which I thought was really great. But then I asked a um, very prominent critic in New York once, why don't they ever do that in New York? And he said, oh, you can't talk about a movie after you've seen it. Critics will steal your ideas. And I, I mean, other critics will steal your ideas. And I thought, well, wait a minute. I thought I used to think it was great if somebody stole my idea because the ideas were what were important. Whereas somehow in the in New York, the idea was somehow like ideas were personal property, and it was the critic. It wasn't the ideas that were important anyway. It was the critics that were important. Yeah. And it was even and even beyond that, it was the places the critics wrote for that was important. Mm. So it was it, in a kind of way, you know, uh, the ideas themselves and the films kind of got lost in the shuffle. So it became more like a, it's become more of a personality thing, or just a kind of a question star of star politics. In the same way that there are movie stars, there are star critics, like you like you call them, yeah. people whose reputation is more important than uh, what they're actually saying. Um, also, in the book itself, I guess it's not ex- uh, implicitly said, but uh, explicitly said, I should say, uh, but. There seems to be a thing where, like you mentioned, several examples where, like the the two star blockbuster that gets mentioned, but the four star small film doesn't get mentioned. That in a way, the media in general uh, concentrate on the business aspect of film, yeah. and everything else gets by completely, completely forgotten. Example of that, of course, is those person I find extremely annoying box office result that they give us every week about which film made more money than the next, as if, yes, who really you know, cares? Really? Well, I, mean, I know. Well, the funny thing about that is it's a manufactured interest by those who do care, because, I mean, you know, 20 years ago, nobody could, nobody cared about this. And I, I mean, wouldn't it be hilarious and ridiculous if, you know, we picked up the newspaper or a magazine every week and found out, you know, the 10 best-selling toothpaste brands, for example. Yes. I mean, you know, why would anybody care about that? I mean, why we should care about what kind of money other people are making, it seems to me, uh, is a real mystery, too. Yeah. But I think it, you know, I think in America it has something to do with the idea, the the prestige of sports, you know, which is much greater than that of any art or anything. And, you know, you can quantify a sport, you know, it's, you can basically, somebody has a batting average and, you know, you can put it all in numbers and you can say this person is ahead of this person if it's competitive, you know, the Oscars are like that too. Hmm. So the minute you make it into a sport, it's, um, it's something that you don't have to use your own, um, intelligence or critical powers or sensitivity, you know, to deal with. It's just sort of like, it's clear, this one's the winner, this one's the loser, you know. 
and that's end of story. So it's and it's very unfortunate that a lot of people who are called critics are really just tipsters, you know, or like people who who sort of advise you who to bet on in horse races or something hmm. like this, who aren't really critics at all, who are hmm. just sort of like, um, you know, all this. I find it just as boring. All this guessing about who's going to win the Oscar, you know. I have to confess, I actually haven't watched the Oscars in years and years. But uh, it's strange because even though I don't watch that much TV, I, I it's, it's hard to avoid. You know, as a spectator sport, I do watch the Oscars. Oh, really? Oh, okay. And, you know, it's 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 very silly, but it's you know it's fun in a way. But no, not if you take it seriously. And the point is, is that that kind of discourse takes the place of what's considered you know discourse about. And it's not just about art too. This is another problem for me, at least that it's always assumed that the only things that films can be are art or entertainment. And I think that's absurd, because, I mean, if, if who would ever say this about books, you know? Just think about all the important things that we get from books that have nothing to do with art or entertainment. And it seems to me that there are all kinds of very important reasons for seeing films from other countries, for example, because it's often the only way we're going to be able to really get a sense of what life is like in those countries and what's going on there. Now, it may not be entirely accurate, but it's better than what we're going to get from Time Magazine or from, from CNN. Yes. Uh, uh, it's more detailed. And, and, and the point is, is that something does come through. We, we, we wind up in some kind of contact with the people who are there. And that doesn't necessarily have anything. I mean, art may be involved in it, entertainment may be involved in it, but it's something apart from it. Yes, that's uh, important. That's an important, important point, which is, well, I'm, you made it, but I... I thought of it first. <laughs> the fact that uh, uh, I've watched a lot of films, uh, foreign films, and uh, and I've privileged actually I've seen. Uh, I'm more familiar with the French uh, film industry uh, for reasons I won't explain. But anyway, I've seen a lot of their commercial stuff, and it, it you know it, the commercial stuff of other countries is more or less sometimes as stupid as the American version of oh, it. Yes. But the thing is, there's this conception or preconception. Uh, maybe perpetrated by the media that somehow, like say, foreign films are always just art films, and basically, you know, it's always just bicycle teeth, which is all we ever hear about from foreign films, right? That's and there's true, no commercial yeah. movie industry anywhere else, and certainly we never get to see them. But that there's a whole lot, the whole world really of movies arranged, not just art, but of documentaries and so on. That never enters the consciousness. I do want to mention, though, that I think one thing that's been, in a, to me, an important improvement, at least in part of the situation in the United States, is that there's a there's a chain of theaters, um, of art theaters, called Landmark, that actually have, you know, two in the Chicago area, have two little multiplex, uh, two multiplexes now, which are art theaters. And they've been showing a lot of import, films that are foreign films that are not simply art films, but are entertainment films. Like, And in fact, they're sometimes better and more entertaining than Hollywood films. A, a good example of what I mean, a wonderful German comedy called Mostly Martha, for example. And that's changing a bit the image. Another film, this is a very important thing that happened since my book you know, was originally written and came out, is that Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, you know, made a box office bonanza hmm. all over the West. Now, apparently, you know, it wasn't like so much in Asia where it was not considered, you know, like a really, you know, a legitimate part of the genre. And so, well, some, it did well, but I mean, it critically was not received as well. Mm -hmm. But the point I guess I'm making is everybody said quite inaccurately and, and presumptuously that everybody hates, you know, Americans hate subtitles and teenagers hate subtitles, and which is absurd because, I mean, most at that point when they said it, most teenagers and most Americans have never seen a subtitle movie. Except for, if you start thinking about it, Schindler's List, Dances with Wolves. Of course, they don't count, but they do have subtitles after all. Uh, then, But then it, this movie came out. It got a lot of publicity. They spent a lot of money advertising it. It showed in shopping malls all over the United States with subtitles, and people went. Nobody said, oh, I'm not going to go to that. It has subtitles. So it proved to be a mythology. And, of course, they could have followed it up by doing this with other foreign films. So far, they've chosen not to. It seems to me they've made a mistake in that way because they could have made money out of films like Run, Lola, Run had they shown them in shopping malls where teenagers would have gone to them rather than just art theaters where teenagers usually don't go. Yes. Um, so I think that there's a kind of unfortunate narrowness. And it's a narrowness that, that exists in a kind of all sorts of area, unexpected areas. For example, the one 
work I actually did for a Hollywood studio. My whole life was a consultant on a re-edited version of Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. And this is a film that was very successful commercially for, you know, an art house type film, the way it was shown all over the world. But it was months and months and months before the producer and I could convince the head of foreign sales at Universal Pictures that anybody outside the United States would be would be interested in seeing this film. I mean, even she did not have any sense of how what a major interest there is in Orson Welles all over the world. So, I mean, there's that level of provinciality in, yes. in the studio system. And uh, co- consequently, the idea of trying out new things and developing new markets is very... It's really it's unfortunate that the people don't think this way because the whole the whole theory is, which is the theory behind remakes and sequels, is that you exhaust given markets that already exist. You don't develop new ones, which is funny because there's so many films that are successes that aren't expected to be successes. So you almost like follow instead of like trying to take take chances, you you wind up taking chances anyway, but it's by default. Mm thinking that you're, you're following some kind of scientific system, which is, which is a fantasy. But the thing is I find interesting, well, just as, as a sidebar, is that uh, technically it's still, I'm, well, you can correct me, it's still a, a crime, or, well, I guess it is a crime, uh, for have, to have a monopoly in the U.S., right? So technically Hollywood, even though the laws have not been enforced, they're still technically, it's still illegal to do what they're doing, right? They're just yeah, not but being I think enforced. But that's kind of like, I don't know, I grew up in, the, you know, in Alabama, and you know, there were all sorts of you know, national laws of certain kinds that, that states didn't follow, you know. Mm, okay. And so consequently you had, you know, things like Jim Crow laws and all kinds of things. Yeah. And I think in, in effect, you know, you could say it may be on the books that there are laws, but in, in fact the way that actually business is usual is that the laws don't exist, at mm-hmm. least in any kind of existential way, yeah. um, which is unfortunate. But I mean, of course, this is, but I think the people, the point is, is that part of the system entails that it'll all give the impression of just being normal and average and reflecting, you know, yes. the wishes of the public and so on, rather than being something that's actually crafted and selected. Uh, you know. Yeah, they give the impression that it's a kind of a natural state of affairs, whereas it's, it's like you say, it's manufactured, it's being directed by somebody somewhere in a room somewhere. <laughs> not, not in terms of a conspiracy, but it is not a, a, a natural thing. It's somebody had to kind of impose this system on yeah, people. Well, I mean, a, a good example of what I mean, and I think well, there are examples of it all the time, and this is where I, I feel that my some of my colleagues are particularly reprehensible, is that a distributor like Miramax buys up twice as many films as it releases, uh, many of which it buys up, it never releases, and it actually they determine which of their films are important. Yes, and those are the ones that kind of get reviewed, treated as important. So that, for example, major among the greatest filmmakers who've ever lived, you know, have made films that that Miramax has picked up and not distributed, which means that they've made it impossible for people to see. Uh, yeah. That includes such filmmakers as Abbas Kurastami, Jacques Tati, Jacques Demy. Um, yes, I, and, I was, and most of what they do pick up, they recut also. Yes, I was quite actually, I mean, just uh, kind of interject here. Uh, for you who don't know, Miramax is a film distributor in the U.S. who has, like you said, a lot of, a lot of power. And in and fact, they're, they're part of Disney. That's another important that's right, part. That's right. So yeah. they, they, they handle films that are called independent films, which is a joke. In other words, they handle Quentin Tarantino's films, for example. But Quentin yes. Tarantino doesn't have final cut. It's it's Miramax that has final cut, so he's not an independent filmmaker. So there's been yeah. a complete obfuscation of what independent filmmaking is. So you have, so for people's minds, somehow the mecca of independent film is Sundance, when it's which is a joke because I mean to succeed as a filmmaker at Sundance means selling your film to a studio, which means losing your independence. Yes, you you make the point. Yeah, I was actually I was quite shocked about. Uh, well, I kind of knew about Sundance. But the Miramax thing, I just want to bring it up again because yeah. uh, I was shocked when I didn't know this. The fact that, like you mentioned, they actually sometimes pick up films to uh, foreign films, but they only pick them up. They, they say they buy the rights in order for their competitors not to have them. Well, and yeah, then they I mean, don't even show them. It's a supposition, I have to say, because yeah. nobody from Miramax has said this. Yeah. I'm only I'm only really uh, commenting on you know, what the results are and what 
so so one can one can speculate on the implications. Yeah. I think sometimes they pick up films intending to handle them, and then they they change their mind, or else sometimes they're forced to pick up things they don't want to pick up, and therefore they don't want to distribute. There are lots of things, but yeah. I know, for example, that they made it impossible for one of their own films, like for example, a film that I consider a very great film. I've written a whole book about Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man. That they made it impossible for that film to do well in the United States because. Jim Jarmusch, who is a real independent filmmaker who owns the negatives to all of his films, had a, you know, a legal stipulation in his contract that he had final cut. And Harvey Weinstein and Miramax wanted to recut, and because he wasn't able to, he, the film opened in the United States after it opened practically everywhere else in the world. Months and months after, for example, it opened in Turkey, Australia, it got very poor, you know, uh, you know, publicity. publicity yeah. It was. I know someone who was doing a retrospective of Jarmusch's films and asked to show Dead Man, and was told by Miramax, "You don't want to. You don't want to show this film. It's terrible." <laughs> things, things of this kind. So, yeah. and of course, this thing I have to say actually is done by is done by studios too. In other words, there are plenty of reasons because of turnarounds, because of changing personnel, that the studios, you know, sabotage their own films. It happens quite a lot. And, and that's where even test marketing becomes really insidious, because that becomes the tool by which supposedly they solicit audience reaction, but in fact they're just reinforcing what their presuppositions are. Mm. It's the same way in academia that, you know, um, student evaluations are used. It's not like it's used to help somebody in a, in a teaching job. It's used to shaft them if they want to shaft them. They're saying, see, there are all these students who complain. It's the same kind of thing with, I think, test market previews. And in fact, you can even trace that back to famous cases like Orson Welles, The Magnificent Ambersons. Everybody says it was a disastrous preview, you know, or yeah. disastrous previews. But I've looked at the preview cards, you know, and yeah, there were some people who didn't like it, but there were other people, and quite a large number said, this is the greatest film I've ever seen. Yeah. Somehow that, that never gets mentioned when they talk about it being a disaster, because the other people who didn't like it were considered more important. Yeah, there, there is always a kind of, uh, it's like you said, I think, I don't know if people really know this, but sometimes, like you mentioned, studios either, you know, in other, sometimes for a film to succeed, they actually have to, you know, like it. It doesn't matter if the film is bad or good. That's not very important. If they if they like it or they're behind, they'll go all the way. Doesn't mean the film will be successful. But also the reverse is true. If a film is good and they don't like it, it doesn't matter if it's good. They're not going to sacrifice their opinion. They will actually make it hard for the film for the film to succeed. And yes. that happens quite a lot in the Hollywood studio system. Right? Yes, and I think another thing that's very sad but true now is that the public doesn't even have to like a film for it to do well. And the reason for that is. You know, if, if if a particular movie is playing everywhere, you know, like in small towns, it's the only film playing, people go to see it even if they don't like it because they want to see a movie. And yeah, you so give the example of that uh, film Lucky Lady in the book. That's so maybe, right, yeah. yeah. But I, there are many other cases of that, too. I mean, you could even cite, I think, to some extent, um, you, you know, The Phantom Empire. I mean, you know, The, uh, the Phantom the, Menace. The Star Wars, because, I mean, you know, by and large, I think if you, you know, I've never been a Star Wars fan because I'm probably the wrong generation, but people of the generation who love Star Wars, there was a lot of disappointment. But you, this was not reflected so much in the box office figures because it was uh, they had yeah. enough clout and power to make sure that it did well, even if people didn't like it. You mentioned also that something which I didn't know uh, is the fact that sometimes, uh, in order for the theaters to have these films, these blockbuster films, they're forced to book them for a specific time, like right. uh, four weeks, six weeks. It doesn't matter if after two weeks nobody comes. They still have to show them for six weeks because it's in the contract, right? That's so right. it gives the illusion that, gee, if you look in the paper, oh, the film is still playing. You think, well, it must be must be popular because everybody is still playing. Assuming that people will only show films that are, you know, people coming, but that's not really true. There's a there's a, a clause in the contract that says it has to be shown for six weeks, and no matter what. There's another thing that I think is not, and this is something I haven't really addressed because I don't have the proper. Uh, materials to do it, but somebody should do it, do some muckraking on this. It's always been, I've always heard it rumored that in the trade papers, there's a lot of payola that goes on. That in other words, when you actually see the box office figures, that they're not necessarily accurate. That there's, there are particular reasons why the studio want a film to be look, made to look like it's doing better than it actually is. Mm. And so, you know, when, and, and in fact, there are cases, for example, I'm told that, um, Let's see. Well, I'm trying to remember the name of the film of David Fincher that was this big uh, Fight Club. Oh, Fight that Club, was a yeah. film that the studio didn't like, and so the fact that it did well the opening weekend, I think, was not reflected 
in the actual charts. It was made to seem it wasn't doing so well, so they could withdraw advertising and and make it less successful. Mm-hmm. I think this kind of thing happens much more often than people realize. Yeah, so it's a, it's, there's a lot of manipulation going on. It's not a matter of conspiracy. It's just a matter of what studio, you know, people at the studios see is just doing their job. Yeah. But I think people don't realize the kinds of... Uh, there is an awful lot of, yeah, of behind-the-scene machinations, in a way, kind of going on. It's the, uh, studio politics or whatever, which obviously there's no independent, uh, except people like you, independent media who will pick up those things and tell people, because obviously people wouldn't have, if they knew, I think there would be a major change anyway. And, and, uh, but again, you're saying there's already some change going on. Well, I think there is change going on, and I think an interesting kind. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a small, you know, you could say it, it doesn't... I have to say first that what I consider important change isn't based on headcount so much or or because that unfortunately I think the way that so much of um, film culture and culture in general is looked at now is the more people who are interested the more successful something is but I and if you want to change the world I don't think that's the way you go about changing it with headcounts because I know that when I've sometimes written things that have had very small circulation I mean I've written things you know for like a circulation of you know 2000 you know, a magazine in a magazine I write for in, in in France, for example, and it has enormous impact. Whereas I've written things for mass market, you know, publications that sell millions of copies, and it has no impact whatsoever. Hmm. So I think the point is, is that I think the quality of the effect that something has is much more important than the quantity, yes. particularly because who you have impact on is very important. And I think one thing that's changed. For me, and in fact, it's transformed my life in the last few years, has been the Internet. So that there's an awful lot of film culture, you could say, of a kind that's going on the Internet that doesn't exist in the official real world, which is you know, usually always nationally and locally based. I mean, just to give an example of what I mean, of a very interesting phenomenon that's developing among film fans, is people who buy uh, multi-regional DVD players and then start ordering DVDs from all over the world, which you can do now very easily. When you do that, the list of what you can see, you know, changes radically. And even, you know, like the better versions of what you want to see. Oh, yes. And I mean, I was just reading yesterday, it was very funny, that apparently if you want to see a really good version of, uh, you know, DVD of um, Mulholland Drive, on DVD with a lot of extras, yes. you can get it in Korea from Korea, not in the United States. And you know, um, a very a very good um, fan publication called Video Watchdog, you know, tells about it. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of you know you can multiply that by the quite a bit. So there's a lot of activity that's going on that's kind of like unofficial that I think is very positive because. Because it happens on the internet among people who really care about it, yes. and there you've got real word of mouth, and you've got um, so there's a kind of I see a kind of rebirth of a kind of very serious cinephilia that really hasn't existed since the '60s and '70s. That's that's making some inroads, mm. and I even like to think that because this book has done so well, that I feel that uh, I've been a a very I don't know lucky recipient of uh, some of the effects of this. I've I actually get emails all the time from people all over the world, from people who've read me on the reader, and I, you know, I wound up, you know, like movie place, movie wars has come out in Argentina, for example, and this all came about because I was invited there by critics who read me on the internet, and then I wound up going to a festival there that published the book, and there are a lot of um, connections that are coming about. That, but but on a cross national scale, yes. and so th- that's not that's not picked up on the radar of what's sort of important, like in Time Magazine or in the New York Times or the New Yorker and things like this. Yes. It doesn't exist as far as they're concerned. Because continue the the idea about when you're saying you're trying to convince the, uh, the executive to uh, distribute uh, Touch of Evil. In your book, you have a chapter called "Isolation as a Control System." Yes, uh, that refers. I, I'm well. In a way, it would apply. You know, maybe a bit. Same with the Canadians, but you quote, you, you quote uh, some uh, filmmaker called Kevin Smith, who mentioned about his uh, interest in foreign or his lack of interest in foreign films. Yes, uh, he was saying, if I recall, that he had, didn't need to see any foreign film because he. He could uh, see Jim Jarmusch films, and yeah. that kind of filtered it through to him that way. Yeah. And I have to say that Jim Jarmusch himself, when he read that quote, was absolutely appalled. 
Uh, well, I mean, understandably, because I mean, it's it's basically. I think you know, it's a problem that exists, a kind of provinciality that exists only in large countries, really large countries like the United States. I think it's also to some extent true in China and Russia. It's it's interestingly enough why a really you know a book like um, No Logo by Naomi Klein by you know your local <laughs> local uh, Toronto writer yeah. is much better known outside the United States. It's because you know, it's, and I almost think that no logo would not have been written, even though her father is American and you know escaped the draft by going to Canada. It would somehow. I I, I once met Naomi Klein in Taos, New Mexico, a couple of the, a years ago, and I said, "Is it true? Do you think that you never would have written this book if your father hadn't come to Canada?" She said, "Probably not." I think it's very interesting how that you can get a view of a more accurate view of things by not being sort of like in. Um, in a huge country, in a country that has this kind of, uh, it's, well, it, let's say it's, well, course, it's yeah. sufficiently powerful that it doesn't have to know about the rest of the world, or feels, or decides yeah. that it doesn't it have to. It doesn't feel like you're kind of missing out on anything or something. Because in, in the U.S., the media is pretty much powerful, to say the least. I mean, it does kind of almost, it's like somebody who talks very loudly and kind of covers up all, all the other conversations in the same way. Well, yes, that is important, but that's one of the reasons why the internet is more important than ever. Because it's, it's really, it's really the chances, the real chances we have to communicate with each other. It's not going to be through, uh, we're not going to communicate with each other in the, in the same way through the New York Times that we can, you know, through things online. I think online. At yeah. least, I, oh, of course, New York Times is online. But if, yeah. I, but I think I guess what I'm saying is, is that. As someone who grew up inside the, you know, exhibition side of film, there used to be this important thing about word of mouth. And, you know, you can't really have word of mouth in the movie business if the fate of a film is decided the weekend it opens, because there isn't time for word of mouth. Yes, that's true. Uh, but on the other hand, it seems to me that there is an awful lot of word of mouth that exists via the Internet, and that's become very important, I think. You were saying that, um, I guess, maybe a last thing uh, for the... Uh the control issue yeah. <laughs> about the Blair Witch Project, which is a film that uh, nobody thought there was going to be any future in it, but it, it actually became very popular despite the the media uh, ignoring it, basically, uh, through either the Internet, I'm not sure, promotion yeah. and so on. And that's, as in a way, you're saying it's an example of in the future, really, of how films could be known. Could be, or, I think there are all kinds of other ways. In the, the What I find extraordinary about the Internet in, in relation to politics and social change, is that it's completely untapped. To me, the most inter- one of the most interesting things that happened in the world that's that's almost as interesting as you know what happened at the you know the World Trade Center uprising you know in Seattle is the the love virus, and that people have forgotten it already. You know, we're suddenly through a teenager fooling around on the internet could bring you know, more than half of the business world throughout the planet to a standstill. It was extraordinary. Mm. And the thing is, is that there's all kinds of ways in which people, that the way I conceptualize it is this, that people all over the world have more in common now than they ever have had in any other time in history. Why? Because the same big companies are, are all over the place and they're doing the same things everywhere. And that's true even in places like in the so-called axis of evil, like Iran, where you know the most of the films that are seen by most people are pirated editions of brand new American movies without subtitles. Hmm. So it's like everybody is partaking of the same culture in some ways, and yet, paradoxically, people who are sort of having a kind of panic reaction to this, maybe because they depend so much on their sense of national identity or whatever. That they that they that it's actually becomes this very reactionary thing of somehow making it seem like, you know, national differences are more important than ever and tribal differences and everything. But there's a whole reverse trend, it seems to me, and that reverse trend is becoming more and more significant because I think that, I, I mean, one of the things I feel, for example, that's important to me about Kurostami is not that he tells us what it means to be Iranian, but what it means to be living in the 21st century, actually. I think I think that he has a sense of what's going on on the planet right now, and that sometimes, to, for the same reasons that I mentioned before, just like to know what's going on in the anti-global movement, you have to go outside the United States 
and find someone like Naomi Klein. Similarly, to know what's going on in the world sometimes helps to go outside the United States to other places. And I think that that's... It's part of what it has to do with, is, and this is just a, a kind of a theory, a almost a philosophical idea, that back in the 60s, which is supposedly the golden age of cinema, that what was really cultured then was centered in cities. I think what's actually, in terms of what's happening that's important in the world right now, I think a lot of it is happening in the sticks, not in the cities. Because if you go to the sticks, then when you, you'll see what the real changes that are being made by the, the large you know, multi-corporations. It becomes more apparent when you're out in the sticks. And I think that we need to, the, in, our, our sense of what's going on in the world is not necessarily relative to filmmakers who make their films about what's happening in New York. I mean, and not that that isn't important, but that there are other things that are important. And I think that um, not enough attention is paid to them. So in a way, you kind of, you kind of in a way, uh, at the same time, putting in a, kind of <laughs> a good word for the positive influence that movies can have. In, on people's lives, uh, at least in foreign films and American films, and and and, and as and going beyond the art and entertainment as a way of learning about the world and so on, and it, that test also in with the power of movies also, right? That it can do that change or affect people in that way. Yes, I mean, it's, I think it's I think it's a very important it's a very important tool for understanding the world now. I mean, and in fact, if it were not that kind of tool. I don't know that I would be interested in being a film critic because if it was just just a matter of you know what you know is given a high profile in terms of coming out of Hollywood every week, it'd be a pretty boring thing to be a film critic. I think if that's all it was, yeah. which is what my, a lot of my colleagues think is all that it is. Yeah, so if you're limiting yourself, you have to all the standard uh, Hollywood blockbusters. They would get when you get it would get a bit depressing after a while, wouldn't it? Finishing off here, um, I was just wondering. Um, so you're saying, of course, that you're making a point in your book about, in a way, the, how the because the original title of the book, the, the book that I have, was how Hollywood and the media conspire to limit what the films can see. But you were yeah. saying that the, the title has been changed to just to limit, right? That's um, right. Just because we, one doesn't need to have to talk about a conspiracy theory, and nor did, was that it, neither of the titles. So I have to say, were my own originally. Was they were thought up by the publisher, but hmm. but I convinced them to change it for the paperback just because. Um, I think a lot of some people who reviewed the book, even though it's been received mainly well by critics, it was, you know, rightly said, you know, th th complained about the idea of a conspiracy theory. Yeah. And I don't think that, uh, I'm not talking about a conspiracy theory. I'm talking about maybe collusion, but that's different from conspiracy. Yes. But of course, you're saying that, uh, you know, you go into details about, we've gone more through this, uh, could have said a whole lot more about film critics, but uh, we'll pass on that. But obviously the distribution, the Hollywood system and so on, which in a way, like I said, I think the main point was that basically the, the, the media concentrates more on the business side of it. And you're saying that underneath it all, despite what's going on and all that we see is the business side of it, there's a bunch of people, almost like a new emerging film culture, right, gets uh, emerging from either the Internet or alternative forms of uh, communication, like this radio station here, of course. Um, and uh, so that, anyway, that's a positive thing. Although I think I don't think from the book I don't uh, was there was there was there a, a second edition? I mean, it's come out in Spanish, but not there's not oh. really been a second edition okay. at all. In fact, I didn't have the option of doing that. But okay. I've been working on a lot of other books, and in yeah. a sense, have grown out of some of the same preoccupations. I mean, I have three books coming out next year, which are in different ways related. I mean, I mentioned, you know, a book that I've co-authored with an Iranian writer, an Iranian woman, Murnaz Said Vafa and Kurstami, and I have a book, actually, that's called Movie Mutations, appropriately enough, that's all based on international exchanges, which is very much about this international culture. Hmm. Uh, and then there's a, a collection I'm doing, which is a, a collection of my pieces, uh, which is dealing with some of the same issues, because I tend to write about these things, you know, a lot in the reader and so on. Okay. Um, you know, it's just going to call be called Pantheon Movie Picks Recanonizing Cinema, which let's say, let's bring back the whole idea of critical canons, which were so exciting when we had them from people like Andrew Saris in the 60s, mm. but which have kind of been outlawed in the university. And I think we need them. Yeah. So I'm proposing that we bring them back and say, you know, different critics saying, here are what the really great films are. If there's a, if there's, if I, well, just I'll finish this off uh, quickly here. But, yeah. um, one last thing is that 
I guess I liked, obviously, I liked your book a lot because I thought it was, it's the kind of book I would have written if I'd been a film critic because I, I pretty much felt the same way about the, the strange, uh, well, limita- limitation of what we see. But the one thing that I, I would question or, you know, about, about it is the fact at the end you have a whole, like a, a chapter called The Audience is Right, where you kind of interview yourself yes. uh, to kind of prevent or kind of argue. Sometimes I, pardon me? I, it's actually the audience is sometimes sometimes right, right okay and uh, that, that's fine in a way but I felt in a way that you were kind of on the defensive in a way that you were kind of because uh, I feel like being myself I consider myself a cinephile uh, and I've seen a whole bunch of things and sometimes I feel like I always I feel I'm defensive when talking to other people I have to almost apologize for liking you know subtitle films or I feel like I'm, I'm on kind of a minority and I feel, you know, that's not the way it should be. And I kind of feel, you know, you, have, you were in that position, you were kind of having to defend yourself, like almost to uh, apologizing for your well, taste that, in I films. Th- I think that's a legitimate criticism. I have to say what I would say in my defense about that is that I was quite shocked at how well the book is done because I expected just based on things that had happened earlier in my career as a writer with other books of mine, that I could, you know, would get creamed and attacked, you know, very widely for this book. And so what I was interested in doing was because I could imagine the objections that people would raise, raising them myself and then trying to see how I would answer them. That's partly what I was trying to do in that. And I was also trying to think, and this is the thing that actually some people have what question too, of, you know, like, what do we do now? What's, like... Because one thing that's very funny is people have reacted very contradictorily towards this book. Some people say it's a very positive book. Some people say it's an extremely depressing and negative book. I'd like to think it's positive, actually. But the question is, then, what do we do next? And I end the book by actually saying, I'd rather hear from you about this. That in a way, I'm trying to kind of like open up things to and not make it just about me, you know, which it isn't, really. I mean, I think I'm, the point is is that other people should be talking about what I'm talking about and have been, but I don't think it's been happening nearly enough. So I think, I'm, in a way, you know, I begin the book by really talking about is that, you know, is the producer's always right, and then I guess I end by saying the audience is sometimes right, because I'm trying to sort of like say that there are, to suggest some possible positive things. But yes, I, there is a defensiveness at the end of the book, and again, it's because of the fact that I, as I say, that I, that I expected, not that there were not some objections to the book, of course there have been, but, but there were much fewer than I anticipated. That's good. You were mentioning to me before that the, the book has done pretty well around the world. Much better than all my other books. It's kind of, to me, it's flabbergasting. It's received by now, I think by my estimate, over 120 reviews, and at least 100 of them, or more than 100, have been favorable, which, I mean, again, I was quite shocked by this. So it, I, it makes me feel like I must have touched a nerve. Yeah, I was just going to say that, that there is, there's obviously something going on in, in the film world that uh, is not really, obviously, not being heard of in the, in the mainstream media. So that it's a good sign. Yeah. I should mention to our listeners that, that uh, if people are interested in the book, they can go to the uh, website, which is... Uh, uh, can you remind me? <laughs> yes, it's www.chicagoreader.com. If they click on the movie uh, hyperlink, they will go to your, because uh, your uh, reviews are there online pretty much, uh, well. Yeah, they, they used to be all free. Now that the, the short ones, actually the most recent uh, long reviews are available. Un- unfortunately for me, they've started yeah. to charge for oh, yeah. you know, some of the older ones. But um, actually, but they I, also- can, I can actually say that there are ways you can access for free, if you don't go directly to the reader, there are other ways. If you if you look around, that they're that they've been cached cached yeah, away in other places. But they have a, in that um, a pay web page. They actually have. I don't know if it's still there. That's how I learned about it. But they have the book in um, in hyper in on, on the web. Right? Yeah, At least a I chapter. Think, of actually, it. they have a, well, not the whole book, but not the whole book. No. But the point is, is that, no, it's still there. I think that which yeah. is an excerpt from the book. Yeah. Just an excerpt. Yeah. So if, you, if people are interested, they can uh, click on that. I mean, I have the hardcover, but I'm sure it's still uh, obviously still available in soft cover. And the book is called Movie Wars. Uh, I'll give the old title: How Hollywood and the Media Conspire to Limit What Films We Can See. But now it's been changed to to limit what films we can see. But uh, it's still called Movie Wars. And I'd like to thank uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum for talking to us today. Thank you for a very stimulating conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And that's the end of episode ten. A few thoughts about the interview 
that I had when I re-listened to it. Uh, one is uh, when I mentioned uh, during the interview that listening to the mainstream media coverage of TIFF back in 2003, it was all about Hollywood uh, movies at TIFF, even though TIFF is supposed to be an international film festival. Now in August uh, 2023, when TIFF is starting up again, same thing, same coverage 20 years later. Nothing's changed. And the other thing is that I think it's safe to say that the influence and importance of film critics has been diminished at best. At worst, we could say maybe that they have no relevance anymore. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I will leave to the listeners to decide. Uh, listeners will also remember that in a previous podcast, I recommended uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum's blog. Now, I recommend his book mentioned in the interview, Movie Wars, How Hollywood and the Media Conspire to Limit the Films We Can See. The book is out of print, but you can find a copy of it on, of course, Amazon and Abe Books. I will link to it on the podcast website. If you have any comments about the podcast, you can reach the NFP at nfpcan at protonmail.com, nfpcan at protonmail.com. Bye for now.